Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pediatric geneticist discusses the most common genetic abnormalities. The blood test would tell a person whose risk, say, based on age, is half a percent, that her risk in this pregnancy is three percent. A college professor talks about what it means to live in the digital world. We don't single task anymore. I mean, in the work that you do, you're, you're planning an interview, but you may also be thinking, I, I need to talk to this and that person. And a physician assistant tells about providing health care to refugees living in Syracuse. I have some patients from Syria that may have spent four years or so in Jordan, and then they come to the United States. Um, so it's different for everybody. All that, along with a selection from The Healing Muse, after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll discuss with a college professor what it means to be living in a digital world. Then, we'll hear from a physician assistant about the health care of refugees in Syracuse. But first, Upstate's Director of Medical Genetics goes over the most common genetic abnormalities, including those that are inherited and those that occur spontaneously. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, we're discussing genetic abnormalities with the Director of Medical Genetics at Upstate, Dr. Robert LaBelle. He's a professor with appointments in medicine, obstetrics and gynecology, pathology, and ethics. And today, he's agreed to talk about disorders caused by genetic abnormalities. Thanks for being here, Dr. LaBelle. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Well, let's start with what counts as a genetic abnormality. Um, there's, there's a range, right? There is a range. Uh, some genetic abnormalities have to do with the presence or absence of an entire chromosome, others with a portion of a chromosome, others have to do with a single gene that's undergone some kind of a change, and that might be uh, at the deepest molecular level of just the change of a single base pair, um, and all of those count as genetic problems. So is chromosomal disorder, is that the same thing as a genetic abnormality? or Well, it's a subset it, it's a of subset. genetic okay. abnormality. So the most common chromosome disorder is the presence of a third chromosome number 21, and that's the underlying cause for the clinical condition called Down syndrome. How do you counsel a woman who learns she's carrying a baby with Down syndrome? How, what do you say to her? What, what are the, sort of the questions that, that patients like this would have for you? Well, most of the time the concern is is the prognosis for the development of the child uh, with the condition. Uh, some people have a very hard time uh, holding on to any kind of hope for something that they would call normal uh, if their child is going to be born with Down syndrome. Other families who've had experience with people with Down syndrome sometimes feel more optimistic about that. So their personal experience is key to their perspective. Uh, I don't think I or anyone else sitting across the table from them can or should try to influence how they think and feel about the issue at hand. Um, so my goal always is to make sure they're as informed as possible about the biology of the problem, about the statistics in terms of development uh, so, for example, if Down syndrome is the question at hand, half of children with Down syndrome have a significant heart defect and half do not. So the half with the significant heart defect often can be identified by ultrasound examination during the pregnancy. And so if that is going to be an element in the decision process, it can usually be addressed and, and answered. Wow. Well, with scientific advances, there seems to be uh, a growing list of genetic disorders. If you look, you know, online for a list. So which ones remain of most concern for uh, obstetricians and pediatricians? Which ones are most prevalent? Well, obstetricians actually have a list of genetic conditions that they're expected to think about 
when they are taking care of a pregnant woman. And some of them they think about by testing the pregnancy uh, itself. Others they think about by testing the woman. So for example, um, all obstetricians are expected to offer a woman a blood test to see if she's a carrier for cystic fibrosis. If she is a carrier for cystic fibrosis, then her partner should be tested to see if he's a carrier. And if they both are carriers, then there's a 25% risk that the pregnancy would be affected by cystic fibrosis, and then they would offer testing of the pregnancy to see yes or no whether it mm. is. Okay. And then there's others. Um, oh, yeah, there's for, a whole list. I mean, okay. there, there, there are blood tests, for example, to show whether this particular pregnancy has a higher risk for Down syndrome than is expected based on the mother's age. The risk for Down syndrome increases as women get older, starting at age 19, and continues getting higher as long as women are capable of, of being pregnant. Uh, it never reaches 100%. I think the maximum at age 49 is 15%, if I remember correctly. Mm. But the blood test would tell a person whose risk, say, based on age, is half a percent, that her risk in this pregnancy is 3%, say. And that's higher, but still it's most likely not present in the pregnancy. Then they're offered a test that's definitive to find out yes or no whether that's present. Oh, okay, I see. Well, are all genetic abnormalities, can they all be discovered um, during pregnancy? No, in fact, most cannot. Uh, on that ever-lengthening list, there are innumerable things, hundreds of things, that are not really on the radar of the obstetrician's world because they're just so rare that they're not going to be thought about and talked about. Things like cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, Down syndrome, and, and some others that occur in, say, one out of 1,000 or one out of 2,000 or one out of 5,000 pregnancies are considered common enough to be thought about. Huh. So, uh, well, it seems like, I mean, you can't reassure a woman that everything's fine with their pregnancy if, if there's a good chance that you're not going to be able to screen for certain things, right? Well, if the things are rare, then they all of them together add up to maybe 3%. So it's, it's all in how one approaches numbers. Uh, everyone should understand that if they undertake a pregnancy, the risk of it not going well is not zero. It okay. can never be zero. Some people have higher risks than others, and sometimes we can assign numbers to those and say this percent or that percent. But 15% of pregnancies miscarry right off the bat, right? Wow. You know, right. Before you ever before you even get into the second trimester. So that's a big number, uh, you know, 15%. And then about 3% are going to lead to the birth of a child with a developmental disability of some type. About 5% are going to lead to the birth of a child with some, some structural problem, some malformation, some part of the body that's not built the way it's supposed to be. So those are just basic numbers that have to do with being human, have nothing okay. to do with the mother's age or ethnic background. It's just random, the fact of random being Random things that happen. Wow. Yeah. So at birth, um, how do you become aware of a genetic abnormality at, at birth? Well, some of them are easy because they announce themselves right away at birth. A child is born, say, with a large uh, defect in the heart and a cleft palate and... So, so that's the, obvious. The, at, at the delivery room, if it hasn't already been seen prenatally, which sometimes it has, but, but if nobody picked it up by prenatal ultrasound, certainly the doctor at the delivery room is going to see that and then have to think about whether these are just accidents of development or have an underlying genetic cause. Okay. And are there some that, um, you know, the baby goes home and, and it's not until months or years later that something becomes apparent? Yes. So uh, I met a young woman once who had graduated college with uh, honors, and uh, her life was all just great. She was in an accident, uh, had a loss of consciousness, so they did a CAT scan of her brain to make sure she wasn't bleeding, and she woke up and was fine. And the CAT scan of the brain discovered a major abnormality in the structure of her brain which had not affected her at all wow. in terms of learning or function or anything else. She was just a healthy woman in her 20s who 
had this very different structure. Um, and somebody, if somebody had seen that structure at birth, they would have worried deeply that she was going to have developmental disabilities, <laughs> and they would have worried for nothing. Wow, interesting. Well, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Robert LaBelle. He's a professor with a number of appointments um, here at Upstate Pediatrics, Medicine, Obstetrics and Gynecology, Pathology and Ethics, and he's Medical Director of Medical Genetics at Upstate. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about um, the predictions of which child will be born with a genetic abnormality. Is there a difference between um, abnormalities that are inherited and those that are spontaneous? Well, yes, uh, a big difference. So uh, a classic inherited abnormality would be something that my great-grandfather had, and he passed it to my grandfather, who gave it to my mother, who gave it to me, and I've given it to one of my daughters and one of my sons, uh, and it's just moving through the family. Obviously, if it's going through five generations, it's not totally disabling, but it, but it might yet be an, an abnormality. Okay. Uh, so that would be hereditary in the classic sense. That's but, when we hear someone say that it runs in my family. Exactly. That's what they're talking yes, about. Yes, okay. right. And, and sometimes it's something trivial, like the, uh, a big French-Canadian nose or, or a peculiarly shaped earlobe or okay. something. And then people make jokes about it and say, oh, all the Joneses have it. Okay. But in fact, only half of the Joneses have it because <laughs> it's a 50-50 chance with each pregnancy. So sometimes it's genetic, yes, but trivial, not, okay. not actually a health problem. Uh, obviously, if, of course, if it's really a health problem, then that makes it more important. Sure. But it might still be consistent with good general health and normal lifespan and normal intelligence and still be a hereditary genetic problem. Um, but the spontaneous part of your question is important because all of us undergo changes in our genes all the time. Uh, it's actually not surprising if you stop to think about the numbers. We have three billion components of genetic information in each cell. We have to make a perfect copy of all three billion pieces of information every time a cell divides. And in your chair, there are a hundred trillion copies of that information that your parents deposited in you when you were conceived. A hundred trillion. On top of that, you lose a hundred billion cells every day just by being here, and you have to replace them. So you have to make a hundred billion copies of three billion things every day. You can't possibly not be making mistakes. And so some of those mistakes end up being mutations in a cell, and then all the cells that descend from that cell are going to have that mutation. So that's how brand new genetic problems appear in families that never heard of them before because genes undergo changes and mutations which people think of as rare right aren't you do think of them as rare but the numbers you just gave me it, it's amazing there's not more right yeah well wow. there's a whole family of genes whose job it is to correct the errors okay all right <laughs> well um let me ask you this if there's a certain disorder that runs in your family can is there anything that would-be parents can do ahead of time um, to circumvent so that that doesn't show up in the child they want to create? There are two basic strategies. One has been around for about 40 years, and that is testing a pregnancy to see if the problem has been passed into the pregnancy and then making a decision as to whether to continue the pregnancy or not. Okay. Obviously, that can be highly fraught. It's very complicated and difficult choices, and it has everything to do with the burden that's perceived by the family, the burden of that condition. If the burden is considered light, then they're highly unlikely to terminate a pregnancy over it. If the burden is considered insurmountable, they might consider such a, a course of action, even though the idea might not come very easily to them. More recent years, about 20 years now, we've been able to do something called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Fertilization occurs in a dish in a laboratory, and there are several embryos in each in its own dish, and when they get to the eight cell stage, one cell is removed, and it's tested for the thing of interest. 
mm-hmm. whatever that thing of interest is. And then the decision is made after they know which of the embryos has inherited the thing of interest, which embryo or embryos to put into the uterus to, to go to implant in the uterus and to develop into a pregnancy. This pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is complicated, expensive, hard to do, but it's real. It's there. It's an option. Um, is it uh, successful often? or It's almost always completely oh, it successful, okay. uh, provided the implantation is successful. But that goes back to how many implantations are successful in an IVF setting, and that's never even close to 100%. I have to mention, though, that it always depends on knowing the precise genetic change that's in question. I was going to ask you um, if we're going to get to a point where genetic disorders can be fixed ahead of time, but it sounds like we're sort of on the cusp in, in some instances, if you know specifically what you're looking for. But are we going to get to a point where we can say, I, I don't want to have any genetic disorders, let's just take care of all of them? beforehand? No, that will never be possible. Uh, I've seen plenty of families over the years where we focused our attention on one genetic problem in the family that was known to be in the family and focused all our attention there and ended up blindsided by another different genetic problem that we hadn't anticipated the family was facing. Now, what about in terms of treatment or cures for genetic, with disorders that have a genetic basis? This is a very attractive and exciting idea that has hardly any practical utility. Because if you, say, have four dishes in the laboratory with four embryos, two of them have inherited the thing of interest and concern and two have not, you can put the two that have not inherited it into the uterus and have a set of twins that are free of the disorder. Or you can take the now 16 or 32 cell embryos that have inherited it and try to make it go away, which is a daunting task. Even at the 64 cell level, getting all 64 cells to, to fix their problem uh, is astonishingly hard to do. Why would we devote that kind of effort with uncertain outcomes to embryos that can be set aside in favor of embryos that are sitting in the other dishes and are perfectly fine with respect to the thing of interest. (laughs) Keeping in mind, thousands of other genes are there and there may be something else going on with them. Well, good point. My guest has been genetics expert, Dr. Robert LaBelle. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, how much of your life is spent online? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're talking about living in a digital world with a professor who teaches at both Lemoyne College, the Madden School of Business, and Syracuse University in the Newhouse School of Public Communications. Renee Downey-Hart has expertise in communications management and performance in the internet age. So uh, welcome. Thank you for being here. It's great to be here. Uh, this digital world, is there any way to avoid it? <laughs> I, I, unless you've got an island somewhere in the middle of nowhere and you can unplug everything, I don't think there is. And I'm not sure that we really want to. I don't think most of us want to go back to the days before we could track our teenagers at 11 o'clock at night or get a quick text on a late meeting. There's a lot of it that's wonderful. But it's a tool. It's not to supplant human interaction. And I think that's where we get tripped up. So what, is dig- what do you mean by digital? Digital is all the platforms that we use, all the media that we use, from our our phones to our computers to our laptops to our tablets, televisions, radios. Anything that comes out from elsewhere to us is is this digital piece. Anything that needs to be charged at night? Well, most of of them do, don't they? It seems like. Now, um, so it seems like, I mean, in this day and age, we're sort of forced to live at least some of our lives online, right? Yeah. There's wonderful research on the Pew Charitable Pew Charitable Trust website that does a lot of research on this. And 88% of people think that the internet is good for us, 88% of all Americans, but but only about 70% feel that it has a great overall value. 
because along with this connectivity that we have, there are caveats, and I'm not sure that we saw those coming. I also find, and as we continue the conversation, I'd like to talk about how sometimes we know technology can do something, but is it good for the human piece of us? Just because and it can do that's the it. balance, yeah. Because we have tech, should we be using the tech? Um, it, for me, that the you know the upsides are this amazing connectivity. I think it's wonderful. One of my one of my Lemoyne students texted me last night at eight o'clock with a question about a paper that was due. I could send her back a text in fifteen seconds, and we're done. Nobody has to go to email and open it. So the, the urgency of that is wonderful, but we have to be careful that not everything becomes urgent, and not everything becomes instant. And that's the world that we're in right now. So have we lost some things by moving to digital? Are there things that we've left behind? That- sure. Sure. I mean, I, I think about it. I've, I've been interested in this for a long, long time. I was thinking about this, you know, before I had my first um, phone, digi- uh, cell phone. There was a time when after dinner, what would families do? They'd go out on the front porch in their towns and they'd connect with their neighbors and their kids would play on the lawns together and so on. And we had this really wonderful social connectivity that was very organic. We went to um, meetings and events and things that, that you know, took us offline and, 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 and kept us in, um, you know, connecting with one another in social and business settings. Enter this digital age and we've kind of gone indoors. This actually started before the digital age, stopping the front porches and so on. And we live in the town to talk about that. Willis Carrier's invention of air conditioning took us from the front porches into our living rooms. And, you know, early 50s, here comes television and so on, which kind of brings us inside even more. But human beings want fellowship. We have a basic human need for one another. Granted, there are hermits in the world, but there aren't very many. And by the way, they're really hard to find to survey, just for the record. <laughs> but, but for most of us, that social peace is an innate human need somewhere along the line. And we have decided to supplant that with going down to our basement to our computers and saying, this is, this is my social peace. And I'm not sure it's giving us all that we really need. Well, which generation, birth years, um, which generation do you think is most comfortable and this is most natural for living online? I'm a baby boomer. And so I had to learn that first computer that sat on my desk and I missed my Selectric. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners, that's going to resonate for them, right? And then we get into Generation X, which are the people that were born from uh, 65 to 81. And that generation is saying, you know, they're kind of making this transition into digital. But now we have millennials, and, and these people are digital natives. And by the way, millennials are now between the ages of early 20s and late 30s. So as we talk about millennials, I think a lot of us still think of seeing, you know, that student at Lemoyne walking around campus with their phone in their hand. But truly, millennials are all the way up into the late 30s now. They're vice presidents, they're directors, they're running the world. And I think we have to stop seeing them as somebody that just arrives from another planet that somebody else raised. Millennials are part of the fabric of us now. But they are digital natives, and they're driving a lot of this. They're driving us um, virtual meetings and, and you know companies that will have uh, a meeting now with Zoom technology or Meetup as opposed to face-to-face. And although the technology is a wonderful thing, and it does link us beautifully, it still doesn't give us that human nuance that you and I have right now sitting in the same room, that eye contact, that level of, of, you know, the human piece. There is a researcher out of Harvard named Edward Hallowell, H-A-L-L-O-W-E-L-L, and he talks about human moments. And most of business, really what any of us do, has to do with connecting with other people. And Hallowell says that human moments require an emotional presence and a physical presence in a room with one another. Digital lets us get rid of the physical presence, and we lose a lot. We know with our communication classes from, from forever that it's, it's the nuance of the voice. It's the, it's the physical motion of the person you're with. And that human moment thing is what makes us who we are. And make no mistake, I love my technology. I love my tablet and my phone and all the things I do. I love it. But there's a time to say, you know, what is this? What is this? And it's a tool. It's not the whole of who we are. Well, I saw an estimate that um, 4.1 billion text messages are sent each day. And so, you know, we can be in touch with one another constantly, basically. Um, Do you see that as a positive or a negative? I think what I see it as is fascinating. You know, I use this quote when I when I start talking about this in a lecture from Socrates, who talked about how you know this next generation is going to heck in a handbasket. What are they? You know, this is Socrates thousands of years ago, right? And we're still kind of doing that. So for me, um, I, I think that it's it's the beauty of being able to connect that we need to embrace. Okay. 
Well, um, let me ask you this. What is the constant connection doing to our attention spans? Yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty um, amazing, actually. The average American attention span right now is a very few minutes. And part of that, there was seven minutes for a long time, and part of that was television that gave us a break every seven minutes to do their commercials. Oh. Your subconscious is living and breathing there, right, saying, oh, I'm going to take a break now. So our attention span has been getting briefer and briefer. Now when you look at this next generation coming up, and no one has quite named them yet, I'm hearing Generation I, small i, Generation Z, um, this generation coming up, they're talking about it in terms of seconds, 15 seconds, 20 seconds, until something zips or blips or needs to be looked at, or you you need to check another screen. Every one of us has been in a hallway at our workplaces having a conversation with somebody when the other phone went off and you reach for it and it becomes okay to interrupt that conversation to do this. So what do we do? Well, the pundits say, well, this is good. We're multitasking. But in reality, the human brain doesn't multitask. It toggles. It doesn't do two things at once. So I think we're losing quality with this. I think with our attention spans dropping. Wonderful book by a guy named um, Nicholas Carr called In the Shallows, where he's saying, be very careful we're not watering everything down to seven bullets on a PowerPoint to get the message across, because we still need depth. And this idea with all these platforms bleeping is called continuous partial attention. So I'm sitting with you doing this, but at the same time, I'm thinking, oh, got to email that student or pick up my dry cleaning or something, because your brain can do this. And it's for us to take a breath sometimes and stop. It's, it's challenging us and changing us. Is it hard for um, students to learn in this day and age when, when there's so much skimming and so much, you know, just the headline here yeah. and the, yeah. or the, you know, the tweet? I think so. I think so. When we reduce everything to 140 characters and we think, you know, this is the news I've got. You, you see that every day. This is, you know, just just the tweet or the small piece. And, and is it really enough? So the attention span thing is there. The, the watering down of information to get it imparted. And because, honestly, there's, there's just too much. The statistics about what your great-grandmother would have learned in a year versus what one of our students will learn in a week you know, because they have all these media things. But how do we pick out what we really need? And I think that's the problem for a lot of us. We try to do it all. We try to learn everything and know everything and see everything, and it's just not possible anymore. Are we filtering for ourselves? Because that's one of the big coping strategies. Well, I also want to ask you what this is doing to our notion of privacy. Mm. Because so much is shared online that a few years ago you wouldn't have spoken of but it's amazing it is. isn't it that you know and we had the the coo of cisco um the, the the tech people not the frozen people of cisco on lemoyne's campus um uh, two years ago and i asked him that question and he said what's privacy i mean when i was a kid if i broke up with my boyfriend i would call my best friend now it goes out on snapchat and everybody knows and, and here we are and and i i just think well and you see that in the media every day i mean don't you look and think why would somebody put that out there Sure. And it, it inhibits other things, too. I mean, we can talk about the joy of our devices and how much we love them, but think about the things that we're missing because of it. Quality time. I mean, that was always a phrase we used to use, right? Mm -hmm. But are you having a real good face-to-face -face conversation if somebody is blipping? Because when your brain shifts somewhere else, it takes several minutes to go back to the same level of concentration and performance than before you were interrupted. So we set ourselves up in working life. There's even now people talking about shallow work versus deep work. Deep work is when you turn your devices off. How much of our work is shallow now? There's so many parts of this. It also has um, conversations um, on it. And when we talk about our devices, I might be with my best friend um, out in Rochester, and we text every night for a little while. I've got no nuance to her voice, right? It's, it's, is there context for the conversation that we're having? Um, blind dates aren't blind dates anymore. I can go stalk somebody and know who they voted for and what they look like and whether or not they're allergic to peanuts. And, you know, that's probably good. But, but still, are we not missing those human moments? I'm afraid we're losing our personal touch. I, I will go back a little while and tell you the very first time that I was, I was doing digital things, I called my grandmother and I said, uh, you know, this is, this is a really interesting way to build community on these digital sites. You know, and this was, this was, you know, 15 years ago and at her point and I talked about building community and she said Renee you build community by going out the front porch with a pop of tea and I thought you know from the mouths of my great grandmother there's something, to that. there's something to that cup of tea so it isn't for anybody to say we want to get away from this stuff but we sure do want to use it as intended if all you have is a hammer what are you doing 
Right. Well, I took my iPhone to Apple recently for a repair, and they said they would have to keep it for a matter of hours. And the genius told me (laughs) that this doesn't sit well with teens. He said that some of the teens that have come in and needed repairs would rather, you know, cut their arm off than go without their phone for the few hours that's needed. Does that surprise you? It it doesn't surprise me because of my students. I do want to backtrack, though, and say that don't you think it would be a lot of pressure to wear a shirt that says genius on it? When yes. You go to work. Okay, just wait. Um, my, there's actually research saying that there are mental health issues for students whose phones are taken away for younger people, and I'm going to take that right back to parenting. You know, are you allowing phones on at dinner time? One of the biggest indicators of a child's success in school is dinner with their family. Are you talking or are you on your screens? You know, if you can't disconnect for two hours. If you can't disconnect, yeah. Um, it's it's unfortunate because what's going to be lost if you can't disconnect for two hours? What are you going to be missing in those human moments that, that Harvard talks about? Well, are there ways to minimize the anxiety and distress that comes from being unplugged? I think it's a different thing by different generations. This digital generation that was born with a phone in their hand is going to find that very foreign. you know. And it's really a pretty simple thing. Can you ever lead an unplugged life? families can push that to one another that you know we have a cottage up north and for the longest time we had no signal we played scrabble and monopoly and chess right a different dynamic than playing scrabble on my iphone which i also do every day but it's different um and also the other thing that we do as human beings in in working is we don't single task anymore I mean, in the work that you do, you're, you're planning an interview, but you may also be thinking, I, I need to talk to this and that person. So can we focus on one thing? And that becomes more and more challenging. Are you prioritizing well? Do you have to check your Facebook right now? Do you set your computer up to blip when a message is coming in an email? Now, I remember early email. I'm guessing that you don't. But early email, I mean, you'd get an email and you'd think, oh, wow, somebody wants me. This, I mean, subconsciously, right? This is so cool. And then it turns out to be, you know, my brother-in-law who says, oh, I got a funny joke. Um, but, but we need to, to use it for ourselves and use it as a tool. And I think that's what we don't do as well. Well, this has been a very interesting discussion. Thank you for being here. My guest has been Professor Renee Downey-Hart from both Lemoyne College and Syracuse University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, meet a woman who was once a refugee and now provides care to refugees as a physician assistant. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Syracuse has been known for the last decade as a city where people can resettle if they're fleeing their home countries because of persecution over religion or race or membership in a social group. The number of refugees coming to Onondaga County has dropped significantly, um, 72% in 2017, after President Trump took office. Still, some 10,000 refugees have made this area their home in the past 10 years, and one of the things they need is medical care. So here to talk about her role in caring for the refugee population is Ayan Mohammed. She's a physician assistant in Upstate's adult medicine clinic where many refugees receive their care. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's begin by uh, talking about the difference between um, a refugee and an immigrant. Some people maybe see those terms as interchangeable, but they mean different things, right? Right. Yep, absolutely. Um, So a refugee, um, really, when we're talking about the word refugee, is somebody who um, has been forced to flee uh, or leave their country for fear of persecution, violence, or war. Um, So they are leaving really out of necessity for safety, rather than just simply better employment or to meet a family member. Um, Their stories are distinctly different, whereas an immigrant may be coming to um, just, you know, meet a family member, um, reunite with a family member, I should say, um, or to um, find better employment. The history of trauma is not as prominent as it is for a refugee. Okay. So do you have a feel for which countries of origin are the most prevalent in this area? 
So when refugees are resettled, they usually are in waves of kind of what countries are most at need, depending on whatever, uh, what the climate is currently with uh, wars in different um, different countries that we may have going on. So currently, we're all familiar with the crisis happening in Syria. Um, so we may see that um, more prevalent now. But um, I would say in our practice, I mean, we see, uh, you know, ton from Democratic, Democratic Republic of Congo, Somalia. Um, uh, we see a lot of, you know, uh, uh, Bhutanese and, and Nepal. Um, so it comes in waves, um, and it really depends on, you know, what countries are most hit with uh, the, the war. All right. I noticed um, that you're a graduate of the Lemoyne College PA program, um, and that you also speak Somali yourself. Yes. Um, can you talk about your background and what drew you into the medical field and then why you have, it seems like a passion for refugee health. Yeah. How did that all come about? Um, so I, uh, actually my dad is in the medical field. Um, so growing up um, way back in Somalia, he's actually a dermatologist and has had, has his own clinic there. And so growing up, I was sort of familiar with the with the medical field. Um, and then I think just watching, you know, someone like my mother who had always just helped people um, in everything that she did, um, you know, being a community member um, and really helping refugees when, when we came here, I just was always intrigued. Uh, and I know it sounds cliche to help people, but that was really what drew me. Um, and medicine, I think, is just an interesting field because you really um, get to meet people, I think, in their most vulnerable state and can really help them. And they really rely on you, especially the refugee population. I think, you know, they've had so much trauma that has been inflicted on them and that they felt um, that it's really, I think, I can. I feel I can make a difference because one, I've experienced, you know, uh, their story and, and understand what they may have gone through, and to be able to speak the the language that they speak. Um, for those that are Somali, it, it's just a. Uh, That's got to be a huge help and, yeah. and really a reassurance for absolutely. the patient. Absolutely, yeah. So it definitely helps. So when I see Somali patients not being able to use an interpreter or not needing to use an interpreter because I can speak the language, it just makes it much more comfortable for them and, and easier. So absolutely. Can you explain the process of resettlement for refugees? I mean, um, is there there's advance notice? Do they know ahead of time uh, where they're going to be coming? How does that work? Yeah. So um, when so for refugees, it's a really long process, and so it involves different agencies. And so um, it initially starts out with the United uh, Nations for um, Higher Commission of Refugees that really. Um, chooses refugees, I guess, if you may say. Um, and so they will actually refer refugees that need resettlement, depending on the, the climate. Um, and then the process begins, um, and there's a screening process. They go through multiple interviews. There's different agencies that are involved. They do background checks. Um, so this process really is all done abroad and can take you know about two years or, or more to really complete. Um, and the final end of it for us that we really focus on is the medical screening that they do prior to arrival. So this is usually done within six months of them arriving here. And this is, you know, screening for tuberculosis is done. We find out about any, um, you know, parasite treatments they may have received, vaccinations that they need prior to coming here, um, and then get a sense of kind of, you know, if there's any nutritional deficiencies, um, any diseases, chronic diseases that they may have that need to be managed, medications they're on. Um, and we have access to this through the CDC where we can look this information up. So when they come, we're really prepared for them. When you mentioned that this is a lengthy process and that it may be in the works for up to a couple of years, yes. are the refugees in a protected status somehow um, or not necessarily? Not necessarily. So they may be in refugee camps while they're waiting for this to, to all occur. Um, I mean, my family and I were, that process took for us about two to three years um, from leaving Somalia to being able to come to the United States. Um, so they may be in refugee camps, they may be in a host country that they're at. Um, so, for example, I have some patients from Syria that may have spent four years or so in Jordan, and then they come to the United States. Um, so it's different for everybody. Well, let's talk about um, what happens once they're here in Syracuse. Absolutely. What is that welcome like, and what are sort of the challenges that really face these new 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 people. Yes. So there are two agencies that we have here that are really vital for um, refugee resettlement. So every refugee that comes is linked with, um, uh, you know, case management, and so that could be through. Um, 
Catholic charities or through interfaith works. And so they have these case managers that really are vital, especially during the first few months in helping them to um, go to their medical appointments, to set up transportation transportation, housing, all of those things for them. Um, And then once, for us, really, the goal is that we try to get them into uh, seeing a medical provider, have their initial medical screening within 90 days of arrival. Often we can get that done much quicker, really, because we have such a close relationship with the um, resettlement agencies here in Syracuse. Um, And so we try to do that initial screening through them. And so New York State actually has um, paperwork that we complete. And so it's a full physical examination, blood work that we do, vaccinations that we provide. And then we get them established and have an established care visit where they will meet, you know, our our primary care and further discuss kind of the... um, the things that we have noted on the initial screening. Is there insurance coverage, health insurance coverage? There is. When they initially come, they um, all will receive insurance, um, but then this will get uh, transitioned, um, usually after the first month of arrival, to a managed Medicaid that they will get. Um, And so that is really critical because that is necessary for them to be able to see a lot of the specialty visits that we may um, refer them to, so orthopedics or um, any of our other uh, specialties that we need. Do you encounter um, people who are frightened of medical providers? This is a new country and a new experience. Right, yeah. So the experiences, I would say, vary uh, depending on, you know, who you may uh, meet. And so for some, it can be, you know, they may have never even had a consistent primary care provider or just knowing the idea of primary care um, or that we screen for things or that we have health maintenance. um, And so it's just... uh, really just a you know getting them used to the American healthcare system and there are often yeah times where maybe they've had bad experiences or um, you know not really ones that have been enjoyable and so coming here they may have certain fears or not understand certain things and um, just explaining to them really that as patients they have rights here there are things that we can do to assist them and so I think those fears kind of it take may take some time but I think during the first couple of visits you can really kind of break down some of those Um, you know, barriers that they may have or um, uh, worries that they are having. And you already mentioned language. Um, How do you communicate with someone who doesn't speak either of your, you you speak English and Somali? Yes, yeah, absolutely. um, So um, Upstate has been really amazing, I think, and uh, providing us really uh, translation services. Um, And so we have interpreter services that are available. So in our clinic, we have iPads so we can use video interpreters. We can have phone calls where we actually, um, the interpreter can be audio. We can even get somebody live in person um, who's there. Um, So there's many different avenues that can be utilized. Um, And so translation is really Um, interpretation, I should say, is really not an issue. Um, And then for the ones that are fortunate enough to be able to speak Somali, it just is much easier. But yeah, we can use interpreter services and they're very available to us. Well, what are some of the medical issues that are typical among refugees? Are there things that are common from different, even from different countries or... So uh, there may be certain, you know, risk factors just depending on, um, you know, where they're coming from and things that they may be more um, more at risk for or certain things that they may have been exposed to given, uh, you know, certain things that may be endemic in their area that they're coming from. So obviously we have to be aware of those things when they first come in, when we're thinking about, you know, risk factors that they have for certain diseases and things. Um, But I would say once they really get here, that we see the same conditions with refugees and non-refugee patients in internal medicine, adult medicine. Really, it's it's treating chronic diseases, and so we see diabetes, we see high blood pressure. Um, all of those things are are common, I would say, in in the refugee population. There are just certain risk factors that may vary that you have to mm-hmm. be aware of, especially in the first few months of them uh, getting here. And some of these conditions maybe haven't been treated. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So we get a little bit of a hint from that um, initial uh, screening that I was talking about that is done abroad. Um, But there may be things that have have been missed or maybe not treated as it should be or um, addressed. Um, Certainly, I would say, um, you know, health screening, um, like for maybe cervical cancer, all of those things. um, I haven't seen those really done as prevalently. And so coming here, it's kind of very new to our refugee patients explaining what those, you know, screening uh, tools are that we use. 
the screening tools. And then I think you mentioned vaccinations. There's yeah, probably if you come from another country, you haven't had the vaccines that are recommended in America. So they have. Um, it may just not be in the time. So there's, they may have to catch up on certain vaccinations that they've missed. Um, but there are some that they will get, um, especially if they're in certain, like, you know, refugee camps and there may have been a recent outbreak or something of, of measles, they will get that vaccination prior to arriving here, things like that. Um, but they do get some vaccinations, yes. Um, but they may just, they may have started some and have not completed it. So we have to just complete it for them when, once they arrive here. Um, what about psychological trauma? Is that an issue with people who are coming here, not necessarily because they want to leave their home country, but as a refugee? Does that come up a lot? Yes, yes, that definitely comes up a lot. And it's uh, very common, obviously, from individuals who have faced trauma like like refugees have. And so in our first visit with them, really, we screen for, um, you know, symptoms of depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder by, you know, asking them certain questions, doing questionnaires. Um, and we try to tell them, you know, this is, this is very common. It's nothing to fear. It can be something that can be, you know, treated and, and managed. Um, um, so, yeah, we have to definitely be aware of that and, and, and watch out for that because that definitely is, is prevalent, I would say. Once um, uh, people settle in into the community, do they stay a patient of yours or do they end up, you know, transitioning to maybe a family practice provider or someone else? So once they establish, uh, they can continue to see us um, for their primary care. Oftentimes what will happen, though, is that the individuals that are young and healthy and can find work um, will no longer really need to see us as often as they do. And so we may not see them as frequently as we may see other patients that um, require um, chronic you know, disease management. Um, and some will often move to different country, uh, different uh, states, sorry, to find maybe better employment or be reunited with other family members that may be um, in other, um, other states. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us. It's kind of an interesting line of work that you have found yourself into. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my guest has been Ayan Mohammed. She's a physician assistant from Upstate's Adult Medicine Clinic. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show. Health Link on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Jenny Burkholder, a writer from Pennsylvania, is author of the chapbook Repaired from Finishing Line Press. She's recently had nonfiction work appear in So to Speak and Epiphany. I will read her moving essay, Avocado, which describes the friendship between two women as one of the women is facing death. Early in the day, we sit under your neighbor's avocado tree. The fruits are ripe and plentiful. Some we pick with our hands right off the branches, their speckled, pocked black skins taut over soft green flesh. And some we pick with an avocado picker, a long-handled claw that paws at the fruit until it drops into the basket and then onto our table. I count 26. Later, we walk for an hour up and down the street-lined sidewalks of Vallejo, California. The dusty sunlight begins to fade as you relay all you know about your adopted city, local socioeconomic breakdowns, who lives where, and what will happen at the next zoning commission meeting. You left Chicago 12 years ago, coming here to hike the Sierra Nevada mountains with Phil, the dogs, and boundless energy. Now we're sitting on your aging brown leather couch. Around you, old copies of Mother Jones, The New Yorker, and Sunset pile up on the coffee table. Your bookshelves stuffed with books about the existence of God and waging peace, the anatomy of typeface and design bulge around you. You want to go back outside and walk some more, but you're exhausted and dying. I can see your bright eyes yellowing even under your tortoise shell cat eye glasses. 
We have a quiet moment while John and Phil dice vegetables and saute chicken, and your sister fiddles with her computer. I offer to rub your aching feet as you relax into the comfort of your worn couch. They're warm and dry, and I am surprised at their narrowness, surprised because of how far you have walked, how far you have climbed and traveled, surprised that these almost dainty feet have borne the weight of cancer for so long. Like a devotee, I cradle them, gently press and knead them, the soul of the foot, a universe, a complex blueprint of the internal body, mapped in lines, pressed in toes, balanced on the heels. And there, a little to the left of your right foot arch and below the ball is your liver. It's blocked, painfully cramped. This is your last good day. When we say goodbye, you stand in the doorway of your beautiful house, framed by sunlight and arm in arm with your sister. You wave and smile. On the border between living and dying, we know, deep within our bones, this will be the last time we see each other. I hug you, mindful not to say, see you soon or get better, but rather, you are beautiful. In my suitcase are eight ripe avocados tucked in a brown paper bag, and when I gently split one, cross-cut silky flesh, you hover there, a radiant echo, and I savor your shimmering song, green, green, green. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, care for people with sickle cell disease. If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.